Well, hey, Northside family, it is so good to be with you guys today, whether you're in the room here or whether you're online, it is a pleasure to be able to speak today. There's been some great speakers that have come through here, and I'm just happy to be a part of what's going on and a part of sharing God's word here today. And so we're going to be in chapter 24 of Quest 52, and I was thinking about this this week. We are, we are nearly six months into this experience of going through and looking at just the life of Jesus and what he's all about. And we talked about this almost a year ago, saying, can our congregation handle this? Can we go one year straight through a book, through a resource, just really looking at Jesus? How's it gone so far? Pretty good? I think it's been fantastic. I just, you, you can't get enough Jesus. And it seems like every week we've got something that we're teaching that even though it was planned months and months ago, it seems to fit right here and right now. I'm so excited about this. Today we're talking about what do we need from Jesus? What do we need from Jesus? And there's, some, there's a big difference sometimes between what we need and what we think we need from Jesus. And I want to share with you just something that I do from time to time, maybe twice a year I'll do this. I do a prayer audit. For me, it's a chance to say, okay, I'll know what I think I need from Jesus if I start going back and looking at what it is I've been praying about for the last several months. And what does that look like for me? And in prep for this message, I wanted to get us to think about over the last six months, maybe a year, what have been those top two things that you pray for? more than anything else. And it might expose a little bit about what you think you need from Jesus and maybe actually what you need from Jesus. I won't have a pop quiz and I won't point at you and have you share it, but I do want you to participate. So be thinking about this. And while you're thinking about those top two things, I'll share a few of mine. I'm gonna go back further. I'm gonna go way back to before I was even a Christian. Back in about third grade, maybe fourth grade or so, I was talking with a Christian friend of mine and I was stressed out about some athletic competition. Yeah, stressed out at third grade. I had problems back then, I still have problems. But I was stressed out and there was some award I was trying to go for and it was all these different events and there was this one event that I knew I was terrible at. And if you were terrible there, you wouldn't get this award and it was a big deal for me back then. And he said, well, have you thought about praying about this? I was like, what? I'd never prayed before. He's like, no, seriously, there is a God out there that cares about you, even in the details. Maybe you should try praying. Maybe you'll see that God shows up. And I thought, well, whatever it takes, I want that award. I want that thing. And so I prayed, and, and who even cares about the outcome? But that was my first prayer, and I didn't even, I got the award. I see you mocking me. I got the award. Okay, I care a little bit. I care a little bit. But that was my first experience of saying, maybe, maybe somebody cares. Maybe somebody out there might be able to answer some of my needs at that time for a third grader. But the prayers started to mature a little bit, and over time, I remember praying as a junior higher saying, Lord, would you keep my parents together? I just heard the awful news about their divorce. Would you, would you bring them back together? And there's been other prayers throughout the time. I remember as a 98-pound freshman playing football, Lord, would you make me bigger and stronger or at least faster? They're killing me out there. I was tiny. And I remember those prayers going, Lord, I think this, is, I think this acne is terminal. I might not live through this. Would would you help, please? And with full disclosure, some of you are in my era, you did this to yourselves. Somewhere in the late 80s, you thought a perm was a good idea, guys. <laughs> yeah. There was prayer that day when I looked in the mirror. What can I wear to hide this? Lord, straighten things out. It's getting ugly. I remember having more serious prayers. Lord, there's this beautiful girl, Julie Amon. Is she the one? Because I don't want to go there if she's not. But if she is, 
tell me. I'll marry her. I did. I did. But those prayers, boy, they were sincere. Praying for what does it mean to be a father? I've got this toddler running around and he's starting to pick up my habits. What do I do about that? They say he looks like me. Is that a good thing? And praying for the teenager and saying, I don't know how to deal with an emotional teenage daughter. What am I doing? And then praying for young adults that are going out of the house and what do we do when they're gone? And praying for grandkids and what does it mean to be a grandpa? I'm taking you down this road on purpose because you've prayed these prayers if you've lived long enough. But what's your prayer now? For me, if I do an assessment, and if those of you that know me well that have asked, how can I pray for you? Almost always over the last 15, 20 years, I'll say, pray for wisdom and endurance because I know who I'm not. I know who I'm not. I need both. I need wisdom like never before. And I need endurance because I'm getting tired. How about you? What does that audit reveal about you and what you think you need from God? And maybe it's accurate. Maybe it's accurate, but what do you need? That's the topic today. What do we need from Jesus? And we're going to look at a specific example of this in Scripture. We're going to look at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And we're going to look at an amazing story. And you're going to start to see some parallels, which we'll talk about in just a minute. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up or pull those up on your phone. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic called Bethesda, which was with five roof colonnades, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd been there a really long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going in, another steps in before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Did they miss something? We'll get to that. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man that said, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn, and he was there with the crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, that nothing worse might happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, if you were here last week, you are starting to recognize some themes here because last week, Brandon Grant did a great job for us and he was talking about Mark 2, a different paralytic man with some similarities and some contrasts. I'm going to just spend a minute talking about these because in Mark 2, we've got four men that are saying this is really important that we bring a friend to Jesus and they wrecked the roof and they dropped him in and Brandon painted that picture really well for us last week. In this case, we don't have four friends around this guy. He's alone. And Jesus simply came to him while he was laying there. That's beautiful. We're going to talk about that a lot today. In the Mark 2 text, the men sought after Jesus. In the John 5, Jesus sought after the man. In the Mark 2, it was revealing the faith of men. He said, Jesus, you know, your faith, collectively, your faith is doing the work here. And with the solo man over in John 5, he didn't have faith. 
He didn't even know who Jesus was. He had faith in something else, and we'll talk about that. In Mark 2, it led with, your sins are forgiven, and then went on to other things. In John 5, what we're talking about today, it ended with, stop sinning, because something worse is going to happen. Big difference. So we're going to talk about this. In both cases, the conclusion is take up your mat and walk. In both cases, Jesus is referred to as a blasphemer. And it's bad news. There's your flyover between last week and this week. But what do we really need from Jesus? What do we really need? Maybe your prayers reveal this. I want to start with this. I want to suggest what we really need is his awareness and his availability. Let me explain. Maybe you've been there with me on this one. I'm a frequent flyer over at Menards. And so I'll be on south on 65 and I'll take the off-ramp there and I'll get up to Veterans. And at that stop... A lot of times there's somebody there with a cardboard sign. You know what I'm talking about, right? Cardboard sign, and they're asking for something, and they're looking desperate. And the first couple times I came up on that intersection, I'm like, turn green, turn green, turn green. No eye contact. We can't do this. Stress me out. I don't know what to do. I, I can't slow down and have a conversation. They'll start honking. You tried that. I can't. Maybe I could just throw you know, some money out the, the window, but I don't carry cash anymore. To throw a credit card would be weird. And so you're, you're trying to figure out how to be helpful, and you don't really know. So now I kind of anticipate that there might be someone like that there. And now I'm watching as there's you know, three and four cars ahead of me, and, and what are they doing? I mean, you're four, five, eight feet away from somebody who's holding up a sign, and people get really interested in their cell phone. The person's right over here asking for something, and it's like, Oh, look at that. Coles has a sale. Or they're looking off in the distance as if they're having a conversation with somebody. No eye contact. You wonder what to do, right? That's the angst that I think I would feel when someone's in great need and right in front of me and you just don't know. Jesus wasn't doing that. In this moment and in our lives now, when we hold up the sign, Lord, you know the prayer I've been praying. I need help. Jesus isn't saying, Moses, we got to catch up. Leave him alone. Okay, he's, he's locked in. John, let me tell you what's going on. Let me talk with you. Let me make eye contact with you, Tina. Let me figure out what's happening here. He is well aware, and he is incredibly available. If you look at verse 6 of John chapter 5, you'll see something pretty spectacular here. This should be something that stops us in our tracks and translates into our world. In the midst of the mess, with all of the, what ESV calls the invalids laying around, verse 6 says that Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he'd been there this long time. And whether it was Jesus informing the narrator or, or something other than that, we know it's 38 years. Jesus knows a lot about this man in the midst of the mess. He saw him. He was aware and he chose to be available. He didn't wait for this person to drop in through a roof. He went to this person. That's incredible for us. 38 years is a long time. Back in that day, the average lifespan for a man was 35 years. 35 years. He's 38 years into being an invalid, and we don't know at what, what point he became that way or how. But 38 years is a long, long time. And if you spend some time daydreaming about what this could have been, we don't know. Like me, I'm thinking, okay, it probably started out early in the years where mom or dad or both said, okay, son, I know you think that there's power over there in that water. We're not so sure, but we'll bring you in every day. And we'll get you up close. And we'll lay you here on this cot. 
And we got to go to work, but we'll come back for you later. And day in and day out. But if the lifespan was 35 years, there came a day where mom and dad weren't there anymore. And now at best, we've got friends that are saying, here we go, we'll be back for you later. At worst, it's get yourself there and good luck. And this is where you live from now on. Either way, it's a bad case. It's a mess. And can you imagine the despair of being that old and been there that long and had zero results? That's what's going on here. But let me paint a picture of this. I mean, you'll see a, a photo of this. This is really today. This is a, an image today of what's been excavated here. We see this pool of Bethesda. And you can maybe infer here that there are five roof colonies. You, those are the pathways that have a bit of a roof over them to keep people out of the sun. And that first pool, uh, the upper pool, is one where there would be runoff and, and natural springs that would fill this pool. It's a deep pool. They would get water here. It was a beautiful place here. And this is the one that's discussed. It's the upper pool. But there's also a lower pool. And the lower pool is uh, where the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem would stop and purify themselves and wash up before going to the temple. This was a busy place. It was a beautiful place. And maybe like some cities around here right now, it was intended one way and now it's congested with people that aren't leaving and they're not in a good place and we don't know what to do. And most of us want to look like this and walk away. I want to emphasize again that Jesus is very aware and he's very available. And if that's true for him then, it's true for him now. Very, very aware, very interested. But this man is waiting on power from the powerless. And that's a mistake and we make that mistake. He's waiting on power from the powerless. He's waiting on uh, this water to stir and hopefully something's gonna happen. And then he'll jump in and be mystically healed by something other than the God we know and serve. But we do that. What we wait on, the power, the powerless that we're looking for power from would be the lottery. It would be empty religion. It would be escapism. Sometimes it would be knowledge. Sometimes it would be irrational dead-end behavior. We've got our own things that we do where we're waiting on the powerless in hope for the powerful. And it's a shame because even in the church, we do that. And yet we've got Jesus, the risen Savior, who is aware and available. It's really important. And I want to just step back for a second and say he's not just aware and available for that person at that time and we're over-applying it to our time. Luke chapter 12 says this, verses 6 and 7, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs on your head, losing them fast, are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. The sparrows he's paying attention to. The hairs that are falling out of my head. He's, he's paying attention to those. If that's true, and that's globally true, he knows your story. And that prayer we talked about that you've been praying more than any other prayer this year, He's well aware. We can be encouraged by that. Psalm 56, 8 says, He has put my tears in his bottle. And he's made a record of these in his book. Some of you have wet your pillow with tears over and over and over again, and you think no one sees it. That diagnosis is scary. That death is still painful. That departure still hurts. That fear of the unknown scares you to death at night. He's tracking this. He knows you and he loves you. That's incredible. 
He's aware of your needs. And it's riled because if he's aware of all these things, the good news is he's aware of those things where we're in desperate need. The scary news, he's aware of the things that we're doing that we wish no one was watching. But he's aware. And he's available. And we can take courage even in the stuff he's aware of where we're a mess because of the next thing here. He knows that um, he's also available with his grace and his mercy. His grace and his mercy. And just to give a quick definition here for grace and mercy so that we're on the same page, we sometimes use these interchangeably. Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. He's going to receive a healing. He doesn't deserve that, but he's going to get it. That's grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, if you know what I mean. And sometimes there's that holy swat that should be coming, and instead it's a, not today, let me just encourage you. Let me, let me be gentle with you for a second. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. Jesus shows up not just aware and available, but he shows up with grace and mercy. It's getting what you don't deserve, grace, and not getting what you deserve, mercy. And in this case, we're going to talk about this incredible healing, this grace. But he starts with this question. He says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? And that might seem ludicrous to you guys, but it's a fair and probing question. 176 times in the Gospels, Jesus asks a question. 176 times. I'm one of those geeks that tracks those. We've got a document on those things. 176. Some of us have talked about that before. In those 176, one of the ones that is most often highlighted as I talk with friends, as I talk with coworkers, is do you want to be healed? Because on the surface, of course I do. Of course I want to be healed. But as we dive a little bit deeper, whoa, 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 healing has consequences. I don't know. And do we really want to be healed? I mean, if we're healed, sometimes that's going to change our life. If you talk to an addict, if I'm healed, how do I keep hanging out with those same people? That's my, that's my group. If you're healed from this thing, well, then where am I going to escape to? If I'm healed from that, I don't know that I want a full healing. Maybe I don't want sin eradicated from my life. Maybe I just want it tame. I want it to not conquer me, but I still want to kind of dabble in it. You know what I mean? That's our case. And it's also true for our physical healing. It's been said by a lot of commentators that uh, whether it's the first century or the 21st century, if you were healed from your paralysis, from your, your status as an invalid, you would lose a good income. And now you've got to figure out what you're going to do because your identity was wrapped up in this. So Jesus says to him, do you want to be healed? And do you? He waited through the crowd to find a man who had absolutely nothing to offer. You talk about grace. You know, it's one thing when we network on different social media platforms. We network so that we can kind of be the connector and maybe move up the corporate ladder and get to know the guy that knows the guy that knows the gal and... But Jesus goes in and says, there's one, 38 years, he has nothing to offer. I'm going to him. You talk about grace. Here's the apparent character of this invalid. This is going to sound harsh, but I'm going to fly through it real fast. He's old. He doesn't have a lot of time left, it doesn't appear. He's dependent, utterly dependent, can't do anything for anybody. He is a complainer. I can't get into the water fast enough. No one's taking care of me. He's rude. He never asked for Jesus' name. Did you notice that? Could you imagine, take up your mat and walk? Dude, thanks. He didn't even know his name, so he's rude. He's a blamer. When confronted by the Jews, he's like, he did it, his fault. 
He's a sinner. He's ungrateful. He's disloyal. He's unrepentant in verses 14 and 15. This man is the one that Jesus seeks after to demonstrate a grace that you and I wish we had. And we do. We do have that kind of grace. It's profound. It's his healing is hope for all of us because it demonstrates his profound mercy, his profound grace. And again, it doesn't stop right here. You also see it in Romans 9.15. Romans 9.15, God's talking with Moses and he's explaining his character, his nature. And he says, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. That's my way. I can do this. I can choose to help somebody when they are absolutely helpless. And Romans 2.4, lock this one away if you don't know this verse. It says that his kindness leads us to repentance. It's not a bigger spanking. His kindness, he brings in grace and mercy. He's like, I want you to repent. I want to reach you. I want to help you. And I'm going to just pour kindness all over you to get your attention. Now go back and watch and think about how he's done that for you. It should draw us closer to the Father, closer to the Savior. So he asks, do you want to be healed? even though he has no knowledge of who he's talking to, even though there's no name exchanged there, they don't know each other's names and here this healing's gonna happen. And oh, by the way, one more thing. They're at the pool of Bethesda. Pool of Bethesda. You know what Bethesda means? It's Aramaic for the house of mercy. I love that. I love how God does that. He'll have a name for a place. He'll have a name for a person that paints a picture that can be told for thousands of years just to say, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's my sovereign rule. We're going to call this Bethesda, and I'm going to show up and do an amazing healing work here that we're going to talk about for 2,000, 5,000 years. I love that. I love the power of a name. Now, the flip side is my, my brother, way back, probably 25, maybe 30 years ago, he got his first dog. He got his first dog. He was really proud of this golden lab, and he was excited, and he brought the lab over. He says, I want you to know we thought long and hard about this. We named our dog Kaya. I said, okay, that's cool. What's Kaya? He says, well, Kaya is Hebrew for strength in the Lord. It's like, you wasted that great name on a dog? He didn't like my response. But I was like, seriously, you're going to have kids one day, and you're going to wish you didn't do this because that's a great name. You wasted that on a dog? And then he had three kids, and he may or may not be confessing now that he kind of missed it. That's a great name. We spent uh, time last week, we got a new dog. Little tiny thing, it's always going to be tiny. That's another story, I'll wind you later about that. We spent two days deliberating, soliciting input from all of our kids and their spouses. And we worked really hard, and we got the name Buddy. It's English for Buddy. I love the way God does this, though. We're at the pool of Bethesda, and he's saying, I am going to do a healing work here. I'm going to show you mercy here that no one would believe. Take up your bed and walk, verse 6 says, or verse 8 and 9. He starts now to demonstrate his power and his authority. That's the next need that we have in Jesus. We need him to show up with his power and authority. This no-name man had been waiting for power from the powerless until he met Jesus, and Jesus says, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once, it didn't take a while, at once he was healed, took up his bed and walked. And then what's crazy is Jesus slips away. You know, if I was Jesus in that moment, and just about any church would do this, be like, okay, uh, now's a good time for an offering. Let's take up an offering. Who else wants to get healed? 
Who's going to next steps? Sign up for next steps. We're going to get this. Sorry, Kyle Wilson. But we, we'd have all kinds of different next steps because we'd be so excited about capitalizing in the moment. And Jesus, like, just, he's out. But then later it says that they reconnected. Later he reconnects. Huh. Interesting stuff. Why didn't he capitalize on this? He's healed lots of people. It's common for him to do this. In fact, it's even been common for him to do this on the Sabbath. Look at the scriptures many times. And that's what bothered the religious leaders. It bothered them that he was healing on the Sabbath. Did you notice they were questioning, who said take up your mat and walk? They didn't say, whoa, 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 who healed you? They didn't care. <laughs> they were like, no, who broke the rule? See, the, the, the religious rulers, the Pharisees, were more interested in their broken rules than they were in the once broken man. And if we're not careful, as church people, we can become that. What rules were broken? What norms were messed up? <laughs> and you're missing the amazing work of God in the midst. And so just to help us with why they got so bent out of shape, I want you to know that this, these Ten Commandments, number four in particular, on remember the Sabbath, they had what they would call fence rules. Fence rules were saying this, if this is the bullseye, this is the remember the Sabbath and we got to get this right, what we're going to do is we're going to build a fence over here with a bunch of other rules that are really intense and really stringent. And if we have this fence built in such a way that you can't really get to break this one until you break these, then we're going to be helping you. So they're going to get ridiculous. There was 39 fence rules to keep people from breaking the Sabbath. And here's some that are just crazy. Here's one. You can't swat a fly on the Sabbath because you could be guilty of hunting. Would, would that be hilarious? You know, you've got those times where there's that one fly that just keeps going around and keeps landing. You're like, please get me to Monday. <laughs> I, I, they're just hilarious to me. Okay, you can't spot a fly. Women can't look in the mirror because if you look in the mirror, you might find a gray hair. If you find a gray hair, you might pluck it out, and that is work. So take a good look the day before the Sabbath and don't look again until the following. You won't know what's in between your teeth. You won't know how bad a hair day you're having, but it's Okay. Do your thing. The third one that's really interesting is you can't spit in the dirt on the Sabbath. Because if you spit in the dirt, it might actually kind of move some of the dirt. Or you might kind of do one of these things. And that's a lot like plowing. And you can't plow on the Sabbath. It's crazy. But they were so determined to control this narrative and to control this process that when Jesus came in and did what was actually right, we'll get to that later, they were more concerned about a broken rule than the once broken man. Isn't that interesting? Interesting how we can get. So later, Jesus finds this man in the temple, still a no-name man. And it says they found him in the temple, and he comes to him, and he says, see, you're well, and sin no more. It was really more like the temple courts for the Gentiles. So it would be like if this is the Holy of Holies, the temple right here on this stage, it would be more like the Meyer produce section. And he, he finds the man there. And it's interesting, Jesus went and found that man there. That man wasn't looking for Jesus still. Can you believe it? But he finds him there and he says, look, you're doing well. And I got to believe he's celebrating in that moment. And then comes the mercy, the withholding of what he deserves. It was sin no more, that nothing worse can happen to you. And you might be thinking, what in the world could be worse than 38 years an invalid? And most would suggest that that sin is unbelief. 
that unbelief leading to eternity apart from Christ. And he's saying, I have already saved you from what you thought you needed, but I want to save you from the thing that you desperately need saving from. I want to deliver you. We've got an incredible God, church. We've got an incredible Savior. His grace and mercy on display. He's Lord of the Sabbath. That's a good thing. Back to your most desperate prayers. We're going to wrap this up. Back to your most desperate prayers. Maybe better, maybe better than the outcome that you're praying for is to recognize that he's had an abiding presence with you all along. Maybe better than healing is grace in the moment to get through it. What I mean by that is the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, not, not somebody who was hidden in a sea of mess for 38, the Apostle Paul comes to Jesus three times and he's like, Lord, I've got this thorn in my flesh, please, please remove it. And do you remember what the answer was in 2 Corinthians? He's not going to heal him. He says, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in your weakness. Some of us here have some serious weakness. And we've gone to the Lord over and over and over again. We said, would you please, don't you see it? Of course he's aware. Of course he's available. He said, wouldn't you please be merciful and gracious? Of course, of course. But would you be powerful? And would you show up with your authority? Of course he does. But sometimes with all of those things, that who he is, he's saying, I'm going to wait on this. It's either a not yet or maybe a not today or maybe not here, but hereafter I will deal with that healing because I'm going to show off my power in your weakness. And can we be okay with that? That's the question. Can we be okay with that? Last week, I got a call from a dear friend of mine. I've been tight with him for 15 years, worked together for 12, been praying with him for about a year at the terrible cancer diagnosis that his wife had. And we were believing together and hoping together, interceding together, and he called me shortly after she passed to say, we lost her. And she went faster than we thought. Is God still aware? Is he still good? Is he still merciful? Is he still powerful? Last week, about this time last week, I had the privilege of hanging out with our elders as we prayed over a couple that had devastating medical news and prayed and anointed them with oil and hope and believe and God can heal because he is powerful and he has authority. He can do all these things. If he doesn't, is he still God? Is he still aware? Jesus went into a sea of people and found one. The scripture doesn't say he stayed to heal all, but he's still God. And he's still on his throne. It's something for us to wrestle with. And what I want to suggest is without question, our Jesus, our Savior, is absolutely aware, he is absolutely available regardless of your current status. Know that. He is absolutely merciful. He is absolutely gracious. He is absolutely powerful and authoritative. He is in authority. And will we yield to that, whether we're the ones that get to take up our mat and walk or lay in it a little bit longer? That's what we have to wrestle with today. So...
Last Wednesday morning, I was in extra early, and I often am on Wednesday mornings, and when I'm doing that, I cross paths with some guys that get in at 6.30 in the morning, large group of guys that meets in a specific room for a specific study, and they've been doing it for years. I love them. As they got done with their study, one of them, the spokesperson, came out and he said, hey, uh, Jim, we, we hear that you're preaching this week. Is that right? I said, yeah. He said, well, the guys were kind of hoping that... Um, Maybe, you know, would you mean Father's Day and all? You wouldn't beat up on the dads too much? We kind of worry that might happen from time to time. And I was like, no, the good news is it's really not about Father's Day. The message isn't about Father's Day. Oh, good. That'd be great. That'd be great. But what I didn't share with you guys is the very end of this, and I think it's important as we wrap this up. We stopped at verse 16. If you would look with me at verses 17 through 20 to tell the rest of the story, the rest of the story really matters and all the more on Father's Day. So listen to this. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son cannot do anything of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he's doing. It's Father's Day. The father is at work. We got this beautiful image of the son doing the work of the gospel, but he's carrying out the model set before him by the father. And we know that they're one, but this is beautiful. Jesus, like the Father, is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is God. Jesus follows the example and the initiative of the Father. The Father is at work and his heart's on display through everything that Jesus does. On Father's Day, we recognize that God the Father is well aware. And man, is he merciful. He's gracious and he's powerful and he's got the authority. Can we believe that? regardless of whether we're walking away with our mat or still laying on it? I believe the answer is yes. Would you pray with me? Father, you know what we come to you with. You know the prayers that have worn out a path to you. And we thank you for your steadfast love for us. We thank you that even when we're unlovable or seem that way, you love us. Jesus, thank you for your sacrificial example. Spirit, go before us and empower us and encourage us that we might be well aware of how you're working and may we join you there. Whether broken or whole, we're yours. We trust you, we follow you, and we praise you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Please stay in your seats if you need prayer. Otherwise, enjoy Picnic on the Patio after getting your kids. Love you guys.